Welcome to Season 2 of the Practicing Presence Podcast, where spiritual formation is fueled through a variety of practices rather than a single prescriptive time of devotion, where we discuss different spiritual practices that help us be more present with God, others, and ourselves. What's going on, practitioners? What's up, friends? How are we doing? So we are continuing our conversation as self-love as divine love. Um, but this week, Cullen's going to talk to us about um, what it means that our bodies are the temple and how that plays into loving yourself. Well, so if we continue our metaphor from last week, right, which is the primary, the very first metaphor that God gives, um, is that humanity is made in the image and likeness of God. Okay. That makes a lot of sense, but there are lots of metaphors that exist in the Bible about what it means to be human and what it means to live in a body, um, which can be helpful to any conversations about loving yourself as this sacred act and being in pursuit of divinity. Um, And that's one of them is the idea of the temple. And the temple is so cool because... Um, if you look throughout the biblical story, there's a journey of the temple. The temple is the temple is my primary argument for why there's this thing called progressive revelation, because the way in which God exists in the world is constantly in progress throughout the biblical story. Yeah. Um, the first thing is right after God saves the people like redeems the people in the Exodus out of slavery, right? Liberates them. They build this thing called the tabernacle. Yeah. And what's the tabernacle, Clayton? It's a, I don't know, elevated lean to that God dwells in. (laughs) Like, yeah, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) That's actually a great, yeah. It, it's this it's a big tent it's a big tent um that's also super expensive um and, and god dwells in it correct and and it's very specifically designed there's a very much so a sacred a holy element to it as i think there should be right this is yeah. the divine god of life that we are talking about um and so there's this like holy and reverent element to it. And then there's, so there's also this ritual element to it. But then this becomes insufficient. This experience of God existing in the world is insufficient. And so they build God a permanent house. Yeah. This is in the book of, uh, or this is in David's life. This is a great story. Because David goes to God and says, hey, I live in this big palace. Let me build you a house. Mm -hmm. And God says, no, David, because you have too much blood on your hands. But here's the deal I'll make with you. I'll make a covenant with you. This is the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7. I'll make a covenant with you. 
and I'll make, I'll build you a house. And someone from your line will always sit on the throne forever. Mm. And your son Solomon, I'll make him a man of peace and he can build me a house. And they build the most lavish house of all for God to dwell in. Mm -hmm. And then about 300 years later, the Babylonians come and destroy that beautiful house when they take them into captivity again, which the biblical story says is because of their sin. And if you specifically read the prophets, that sin is sin of oppression and injustice. And so that temple is torn down. And then God liberates them again or begins liberation 40 years later. And there are three waves of deportation, three waves of people coming back and being released from Babylon. And you find those stories in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. All three waves are found in Ezra and Nehemiah. And they rebuild the temple. They rebuild it. And so that metaphor continues that, that, G, that the temple exists as the place in which God dwells. And you live under that metaphor construct biblically until Jesus. And Jesus changes that metaphor significantly, substantially changes that metaphor. Because what does he do in his actual life, Clayton? There's this very famous story in which he compares himself to the temple. He's having a conversation with the Pharisees, and he has this famous line. He says, tear this temple down, and I'll rebuild it in three days. Yeah. So Jesus, in his own verbiage, right, red letter as it's recorded um, in the book of Matthew, as Jesus records that, it's Jesus saying that he is the temple, that God is housed in him. Mm-hmm. And then there's this beautiful passage in the Gospel of John. This is where the metaphor continues. John chapter 1 begins with this beautiful, very common, if you've been around Christian circles for any length of time, in the beginning was the Word. And it's this beautiful retelling of Genesis 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him and without Him. Not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. That's one of the most beautiful and iconic passages in all of Scripture. And it continues on. It's a beautiful metaphor that continues for 18 verses. The point that's important for our conversation today is in verse 14. And the word, the word becomes this beautiful metaphor for Jesus as it continues to develop. And the word became flesh and lived among us. We have seen his glory and the glory of the Father only, Son, full of grace and truth. And the word became flesh and lived among us. Uh, I'm quite 
appalled at the NRSV for this. That's a terrible translation. And lived among us. No, the word that John, or the author of the Gospel of John, chose to use in Greek is, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Because it was literally the way in which God was housed on the earth, but he was on the move. God was on the move. God tabernacled among us in the person of Jesus. And so then there's this really famous dude that writes most of the New Testament. Uh, His name's the Apostle Paul. Um, He also has a temple metaphor. And that temple metaphor, he uses it as a grounding place in a larger conversation about temple prostitutes and sex and what he calls fornication. This is one of my arguments against everybody, you know, we have that word fornication. Everybody's like, oh, don't do any foreplay before marriage. It's like, that's what fornication is. It's like, well, that's not how they used it. They used it for temple prostitutes and orgies. Yeah. Like maybe it was they, sexual oppression. <laughs> well, I mean, I think it's a lot of things. Yeah. I, I think it's, you know, a, a lot of things. But, like, they didn't use it. It in, was unethical sex, in a way. like Or just really inappropriate sex. Yeah. Like, sex worship in a temple orgy um, yeah. is not the most reflective way of a Christian existence in life. Yeah. Um, and so they used it in that kind of way. They used it almost in like a pornea way. It's like sex things that are bad. Um, but anyways, so in a conversation about that, Paul drops this metaphor. This is what the text says. All things are lawful for me. This is in quotations. But not all things are beneficial. All things are lawful for me but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. At each point through that, there are these quotations. A lot of scholars think that the Corinthians had these Corinthian slogans. It's very true that the Corinthians are given over to like Stoicism and the way in which that makes up is in a very, like, bodily forward existence. And so there's a lot of, like, pleasure involved in their existence as well. And so they have these slogans, like, all things are lawful for me. All things are lawful for me. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food. Um, And so that's the quotation element here. And Paul is responding to that type of thinking, this, like, live-for-the-moment type of thinking. And this is what Paul chooses to say. The body is not meant for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. So first ground is in resurrection language, that that there's life happening here. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? So he he ties our bodies to Christ. That's super important because remember, this other metaphor of Jesus as the temple already exists. 
Know that your bodies are members of Christ. Should I therefore take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that whoever is united to a prostitute becomes one body with her? So now we're in that oppression language that you were talking about. Who becomes one with her? For it is said, the two shall be one flesh. But anyone united to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Shun fornication. Every sin that a person commits is outside the body. So sin is against, like, is separate from our body. But the fornicator sins against the body itself. So this, what Paul is saying is that this sexual sin is directly a sin against your own body. Mm. This is how Paul's making it up. Probably because, like, literally, it's a piece of your body that's yeah. doing this, right? Excuse me. So the fornicator sins against the, uh, their own body. And so this is Paul's entire setup for this claim. This is the reason I came to this text. Verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. So Paul has a substitutionary atonement theory in this moment, that you were bought with a price, and so you owe God something with your body. Mm. That's one metaphor that Paul uses. Paul also uses lots of other atonement theory metaphors. Don't get caught up in that moment. Um, there's a lot of other things going on here. Paul Don't build theology of one of verses. Correct. That Paul is specifically using that atonement theory to them to combat their stoicism and their live now for the moment mm -hmm. and bodily pleasure kind of idea. Yeah. Um, and so what Paul is saying is that your body houses divinity. Your body houses the Holy Spirit. And because of that, because of that fact, which is repeated time and time and time again throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament, that our bodies house divinity. Throughout the scriptures, the breath in your lungs is you housing divinity. Yeah. Breathing in divinity and giving out divinity. And so you, as a person who have the Holy Spirit in you, are housing God. You are housing divinity. And because of that, that means that you are the temple. You are the temple of God. In the same way that all of this metaphor has been carried, that God needed a place to dwell on the earth. That was the whole point of any of this, is that God yeah. needed a place to be permanently housed on the earth. And then, this is the metaphor that the biblical book is giving us. That you are the culminating permanent place that God wants to dwell. 
that of all the places in which God has, has lived throughout the biblical story, God's culminating act, the place in which God wants to live most is living in you, you human, you divine being, you pinnacle creature of creation. Yeah. It's a beautiful metaphor in which it's a progressive revelation. It's a progressive experience of God and God's existence in the world in which God's lived a lot of life. Right? God, this world has been in existence for billions of years, yeah. according to science. According to the Bible, we got no idea how old it is. And according to history records and what we can find, we got no idea. Um, but we know that it's been around a long time, and there have been people living on here for a long time. And this book is trying to give us some understanding of the beginning. And so throughout the beginning of the world, the biblical story tells us that God has lived in a lot of ways. God endured suffering. God experienced change. God experienced things God had never experienced before. In order to make a way so that God could permanently live in each of us. Yeah. The biblical story continues to carry this metaphor. God experiences change in the incarnation because God now is able to experience suffering. That act of God's descent, God coming down, is a beautiful metaphor because God gives up power, right? This is Philippians 2. God gives up this power in order to experience life with us. That's why one of my favorite verses is, and Jesus wept. When he experiences, when he hears that Lazarus died. Um, because God mourned, God grieved. Now, God did that in the Old Testament too, but we get to see it in some kind of very real and tangible way. And then God suffered. And God experienced the thing that God never knew as the creator and sustainer of life. God never knew death. God knew that death was possible. God knew that death existed in the world. But humanity brought about the experience of death. And God themselves chose to take on death and experience death once and for all in a way that would remove the effects and experiences of sin for us so that God could then turn around and do Pentecost yeah. and disperse yeah. the Holy Spirit in a very real and physical way evident way to each and every believer that's where i was uh, that's that's literally what i was just thinking about now we all house the spirit and and that's why i think it's an important piece to the book of acts that everything begins at jerusalem with the temple yeah. and moves out yeah because it's no mm. longer bound by the temple it's the people it's the believers going about doing divine likeness in yeah. pursuit of divine likeness and loving yourself as a divine being in the midst of that yeah. because mm. you reflect the image of God and the likeness of God and you literally permanently house divinity within you. Yeah. That's the beautiful metaphor of you as a person uh, with the temple metaphor that Paul uses. But in our larger understanding, in our larger metaphor, that's 
you being able to understand that God values you. Mm. The way you are, the way you want to be, the expression of your best self that you want to have. Um, God wants the best version of you. That's right. And God went to extreme lengths so that you might be and have available to you the best version of you. And gave us very beautiful metaphors that I think are healing. I think that this temple metaphor and this idea in which the way in which God progressed throughout in order to find their permanent dwelling place in hum in humans. Now, with that, I should, as our last caveat, and there won't be a pretty ending to this because... I don't know. But I should note that the book of Revelation also contains a temple metaphor. Um, that metaphor is written within apocalyptic literature. And so I don't give it a lot of credence as my ability to like faithfully interpret it because like 200 different people have 200 different views and they all fit into about 50 broad categories. Um, and so it's just not super helpful to try to build theologies off of. But the end of the story, literally, like some of the last sentences in the book of Revelation um, are about a new temple. Yeah. They're about the way in which the temple will look in final existence. And it's this beautiful apocalyptic metaphor that it's the Old Testament and the New Testament joined together. There's 12 gates and 12 stones. And, you know, there's all of these beautiful metaphors about the way in which the temple is this joining of the two covenants together in, like, beautiful harmony and existence. Um, and so I only say that to say that the temple metaphor continues beyond this, but it's hard to kind of build theologies off of it. If you want to build a theology off of it and a truth off of the book of Revelation, um, the apocalypse, and it's, it's, a, its contribution to this conversation, um, it's that even when God writes all the wrongs, when God finally makes all of this right once and for all, never to have the experiences of sin and death in our existence ever again, um, God has chosen to do that with the people of God in some kind of temple metaphor. And so if you were looking for like the penultimate thing that the Christian mission is trying to tell you about, the Christian journey, the biblical story is trying to tell you about, it's that the ultimate thing is that God is going to bring about an experience, an experience of life that none of us could ever dream of. And the penultimate thing is that that's going to be through some metaphor of the temple. And so I think this is a highly beneficial metaphor, especially if we're having a conversation about divine love is self-love, or literally the thing that houses God. So to learn to love yourself is to learn the divinity of yourself and the divine creator being that exists within you and gives you life and sustains you and made you. The temple metaphor might be one of the most beautiful metaphors for divine love and self-reflection. Thanks for listening to the Practicing Presence podcast hosted by Wellhouse Church. Be sure to give us a rating and a review if you enjoyed the episode. It's free and it helps us immensely. Also, feel free to check out our other podcasts.